So this morning, uh, we'll be in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 26. That's the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 26. And as you're turning, I want you guys to think about this question. Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. It asks this, it says, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? So with that question in mind, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, starting at verse 15, it reads this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? and not to the world. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let us pray. Gracious God, Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, for giving us your word, for not leaving us in the dark to feel our way toward you. But you have revealed yourself through your word, so as we, enter, as we enter your presence, as we read your word, God, I pray, Father, that your spirit would be in the midst, that it would open up our eyes, that it would give us ears to hear. Let us not be dull in our understanding. Lord, help us today. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, what is your only comfort? In life and death. You know, as we examine that question, it comes with the assumption that there are things that we experience in this world that cause us to feel uncomfortable. Right? There are things that we experience in this world that cause our heart to feel troubled, that fill us with anxiety and stress and worry. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world meaning the world after the fall. So this world that we live in is broken, it's fallen. 
I think if we were to list some things that trouble us, we would get back a variety of answers. So I think, I think of, of finances, right? You might be having financial trouble this morning. You might have more debt than income coming in. And it seems like you're drowning. And this is troubling your heart. Or maybe you're unemployed and you're looking for a job. And you're filling out these applications and you know, for whatever reason, you're not being hired. And this is causing your heart to feel troubled this morning. Or maybe it could be you are employed, right? God has graciously given you a job, but you know, you feel undervalued. You feel underpaid. You're not getting along uh, with your boss at this job. And he continues to pile on work. And this is causing your heart to feel troubled this morning. Or could it be that you're, you're married? and you're having marital problems. Maybe your marriage is not reflecting Christ. Maybe your marriage today is marked by selfishness and self-centeredness and pride. And this is causing your heart to feel trouble. Well, you could be single. And you have a desire to get married. And you're not married yet. You're getting older and you're wondering if, hey, if I'm ever going to get married. And you're, you're finding it hard to find contentment and joy in your singleness. And this is causing your heart to feel trouble. You could be with child. You could be pregnant. And the, the thought of bringing a child into this broken and fallen world, it's a scary thing, right? And this is causing your heart to feel trouble this morning. Whatever the case, wherever we find ourselves, I think we all agree that there are things that we experience in this world that leave us worrying, that cause us stress and anxiety, things that trouble our hearts. One thing I didn't mention was death. And what I mean is maybe you lost a loved one, or maybe you're thinking about your death one day, and this is filling you with sorrow, right? You're grieving this morning. I think just the mere thought of death is enough to fill anyone's heart with, with sorrow. One of my greatest fears, besides rodents, I hate mice, right? I hate rats. I'm terrified of them. The world would be a better place without mice and rats, okay? But one of my greatest fears is one day I will be faced with the reality of losing my lovely wife. One day, she will pass away, right? One, all of us will die one day, right? And that's a great fear of mine. We've been together since high school, 20 years. Been married nine of those years. So over the years, I've been pretty, I've grown to be dependent on my wife, right? She's a extraordinary woman. She, in our marriage, she wears many hats, right? She, she does the cooking, and she can cook good, right? That's one of the reasons why I married her. I like to eat, so she, um, she does the laundry, right? And that's, that's a hard thing to do, like laundry for, she does my laundry, my children laundry, and her, her own laundry, like it's a lot of clothes to be washed and dried. 
And not to mention she works a full-time job, right? 40 hours a week. And she still finds time and all of that to, to, to love me well. I'm not the easiest person to live with. I'm not the easiest person to be married to. And, you know, she, she, she makes it work. So you can imagine if, if one day she would just to suddenly die, like, I would be crushed. Right? I probably would be left feeling confused, right? bewildered, and, and helpless. In the Gospel of John, right, this is, this is what we see. This is how the disciples felt during this time. If you look in, in chapter 13, if we jump back to chapter 13, verse 33, we're told of what caused the disciples to be filled with grief and sorrow. In John chapter 13, verse 33, this comes after Judas Iscariot had left them to go uh, alert the authorities to come and arrest Jesus and then ultimately crucify him. So listen to Jesus' words. Chapter 13, verse 33 says, Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now and I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So this is Jesus' final conversation with his disciples. Right? It's, it's after supper. It was during the supper. And he tells them that, hey, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you can't come. Can you imagine how the disciples felt during that time? How would you feel if your loved one, someone you was dependent on, someone you, you were attached to, someone you loved, if one day during supper, let's imagine the conversation, you know, you're talking to them, and they say, well, hey, you know, how was your day? Oh, you say, fine. And then they say, well, you know, I forgot to mention, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you can't come. And by leaving, they mean that they're about to die. How would you feel? We would feel crushed. It certainly crushed the disciples hearing this news that Christ was, was leaving them. Now, when Jesus says that they couldn't come, right, he wasn't saying that they couldn't go to heaven with him. No, what Jesus meant was that they couldn't go to the cross with him because Jesus was preparing to go to the cross to die. And he went to the cross alone. Right, his sacrifice was enough to atone for our sins. It was sufficient. It wasn't Jesus' sacrifice plus the disciples' sacrifice. It was his alone. So he had to go to the cross alone. Christ came into this world to die. Brothers and sisters, God's justice demands death. It demands that every sin that you and I commit, it has to be punished. But you see, Christ, he satisfied God's demands by dying a death on the cross for us to atone for our sins. So up until this point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples have come to know Jesus in an intimate way. Right? Their relationship with Christ ha has grown. Think about it for a second. The disciples, they had the privilege of actually seeing the Messiah with their own eyes of touching them with their hands. Do you know the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament prophets, they didn't have the same privilege. 
They, the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied about the one who was to come. But Jesus' disciples, they actually got to see the one who was the fulfillment of all those prophecies, of all those promises. They saw it. Their eyes were blessed. The disciples, they were taught by Jesus. They, they followed him as he went about preaching the gospel and doing all his good works and miracles. But now you see the dynamics of their relationship with Christ. It was about to change. As he made his way to the cross, the time had come for Jesus to finish the work that the Father had given him before the foundation of the world, right? To, to purchase our salvation, to die a death on the cross, to free us from sin. The reality of Jesus leaving them behind it caused them great distress, much in the same way it would affect, you know, us if one of our loved ones died. But knowing all things and being the compassionate God that he is, Jesus, he sought to comfort his disciples. And that's really the main point of my sermon this morning, is that true comfort is found only in Jesus Christ. And because true comfort is found in Christ, then we should look to him for comfort. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, where do you find your comfort? Sometimes we look for comfort in all the wrong places. You know, the irreligious of the world, they tend to look for comfort in, in everything but Christ. They look to their possessions, their money, their work, achieving a certain amount of success in the world. They look for comfort in, in drugs, alcohol, sex, vacation getaways, certain, certain personal relationships. They look for comfort in all of these places. But the problem is, all of these things that I just mentioned, those things are temporal things. So you know what that means, right? That means that those things don't last. Those things perish. And they leave us feeling empty when those things are gone. They leave us yearning for more. Or maybe you're the religious type. Religious people tend to look for comfort in everything except Christ. All right? They're just like the irreligious in a sense. Religious people, they look for comfort in their religious traditions and their rituals. They look for comfort in, in the fact that, you know, that they go to church, that they pay their tithes. Right? That, they, that they attend a Bible study, that they may attend a, a prayer service, that they're on time for Sunday school. So, you know, essentially, religious people, I think once you peel back the layers, they look for comfort in their performance, meaning they look for comfort in their ability to keep God's commands. But you know the only problem with that is, right? The problem is that the Bible declares us to be sinners. Our performance will never be good enough. Remember, true comfort is found in Jesus. So let's examine how Christ comforts his disciples. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 14, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. To be troubled is to be stirred up. At this point, the disciples, their hearts were stirred up with a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of confusion, a little bit of fear. 
right? A little bit of stress, a little bit of worry, a little bit of uncertainty. Their, their hearts were, were stirred up. They were troubled. I wonder how many of us have ever felt like the disciples. How many are currently feeling troubled this morning? Look at the second part of verse 1. Jesus, he commands his disciples to trust him. All right, this is not optional. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Right? That, that shows us the oneness of the Father and the Son. Right? Believing in God is believing in Christ. You want to know the cure for anxiety and stress and worry? Well, it's simply faith in Christ. It's faith. Over the next few verses, Jesus, he goes on to give the disciples reasons why they can trust him. Right? He promises to go to prepare a place for them. And in going to prepare a place, then that means that he's coming back for them to take them to where he is. And in verse 4, he even says that they know the way to where he's going. But look at Thomas. Man, I, I love Thomas. I think we can learn so much from Thomas. Thomas was so honest. Listen, listen to what he says in, in verse 5. Thomas, he responds with uncertainty. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You know, we're all guilty, right, of, of, of doubting God, right, of, of not, like, we're slow to understand him. And Thomas wasn't afraid to tell you, like, look, I, Lord, I know you just said we, we know the way, but I'm telling you, we don't know. We don't know the way to where you're going. But look, look at how Jesus responds. He says, I am the way and the truth in the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Jesus is simply saying, following him here on earth is the way to where he's going. Right? Following Christ now on earth leads to eternal life. That's the path that leads to heaven. Now Jesus, he didn't teach the disciples about a way. No, he told them, I am the way. Now, and that goes against what certain people will have you to believe that all religions kind of lead to the same place. That's a lie. Because if we say that that's true, then we call in Christ a liar. Because he says, I am the way. Meaning there's only one way to the Father. And Christ is that way. He says he's the truth. Right? Meaning we can take Jesus at his words. His words are full of grace and truth. And not only, it's not like he, Christ just taught the disciples truth. No, he is truth. He embodied truth. In verse 7 through 11, verses 7 through 11, he, Christ, he goes on to tell the disciples that he and the Father are one, which simply means, right, that Jesus is God. Right, we know that God is a triune God. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Right? Christ is saying, look, the Father and I are one. And this is very significant because that means that Jesus has the power and the authority to bring to pass every single thing that he's promising to the disciples in this passage. That's a great comfort. I know it was a great comfort for them that's a great comfort for us. 
Jesus' words are true. He has the power and the authority to bring every single promise to pass. Verses 12 through 14, Jesus, he continues to comfort his disciples by assuring them of the power they will receive from heaven through answered prayer. Jesus, when he ascended back to heaven, he will continue working from heaven in and through the disciples to advance God's kingdom. This power will be seen through their works as they spread the gospel throughout the world. Remember, when Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he ministered primarily to the, the Jews. He rarely went outside of Jerusalem. So it was very important that Christ ascend back into heaven because in ascending back to heaven, the promised Holy Spirit came. Remember how the book of Acts start off. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it says that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will come upon the disciples, that they will receive power, right, from heaven through, through the work of the Spirit, and that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And if you ever read the book of Acts, as you go through that narrative, what do we see the disciples doing? They took the Gospels everywhere. They, they took the gospel through the ends of the earth. Church, I mean, Paul planted all of these different churches in these different regions, right? But now, let's look at our passage, verses 15 through 26. Christ, he gives his disciples two assurances that will be a great comfort and encouragement for us. I think we who are following Jesus today can find comfort in these two assurances. Assurance number one, for those of us taking notes, assurance number one is Christ's resurrection. Assurance number one is Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 18. Christ says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We know an orphan is one whose parents have died, are unknown or have been permanently abandoned. So Christ is saying, look, I know I'm leaving, but I'm, I'm coming back to you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. But I want us to understand about this promise that Christ made to his disciples that promise of him appearing to them after his resurrection, that was only for them, right? The apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that when, when Christ was raised from the dead, right, three days later after he died, that he appeared to Cephas, right, Peter, then to the 12, then to 500, right, other brothers at that time, right? Christ did not appear to the world after his resurrection, the last time the world saw Jesus walking the earth, they were hanging him from a cross. He only appeared to the disciples, to his followers at that time. So you might be asking, well, how is that a great comfort to us today? Well, look at verse 19. He says, because I live, you also will live. You see, the promise of the resurrection is true for us today. Christ has conquered death in the grave through his work on the cross. 
Christ being resurrected from the dead, it guarantees that we will be resurrected. Turn, turn with me real quick, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting at verse 12. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting at verse 12. Listen to Paul's words. He says this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ, in rising from the dead, has reversed the curse of death. Brothers and sisters, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we would still be dead in our sins. It would make no sense for me to be standing up here preaching the gospel to you. It would make no sense at all. It would be in vain. We would all be able to head for that exit sign right now. We could be doing something else. There would be no reason to come together on a Sunday to sing the songs that we just sung, to confess our sins, to be assured of our forgiveness. There would be no reason for church membership. There would be no reason for baptism. There would be no reason for communion. Why? If Christ was not raised, we would, we would all be on our way to hell. The Christian faith is built on the resurrection. If that is not true, then we'd be, we would be on our way to hell. We could just go to that exercise. Now, none of us better not get up and walk to that exercise because according to the scriptures, Christ has been raised. The Bible says Christ was delivered up for our trespasses, but raised for our justification, meaning God has accepted Christ's perfect sacrifice. And get this, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, well, he accepts us. We're only accepted in Christ. It was necessary for Christ to be raised so that we would be justified, so that we would be in a right relationship with God. I ask you, what is your only comfort in life and death? Look, we have no reason to fear death. No reason. Because Christ was raised, we who believe in him will be raised. 
I tell my children all the time, I know exactly where I'm going when I leave this earth. I know exactly where I'm going. In John chapter 14, verse 19, Christ says, because I live, you also will live. Meaning I will be raised, I will be resurrected from the dead, and I will be with Christ forever. Not because of anything good in me, but because Christ is good, because he saved me, right? We have to make, we have to make the gospel personal. Sure, did God send his son, right, into this world, right, because he loved the world? Yes, but I make it personal. He sent his son for me, right? Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, that means one day, we will be resurrected to life with Christ forever. And assurance number two is the Holy Spirit. Assurance number two is the Holy Spirit. Jesus comforts us by giving us the Holy Spirit. With Jesus leaving the disciples, their lives would be their lives would be very hard. Right? It would be filled with pressure, persecution hostility from the world. There was a level of uncertainty as to how they would manage without Christ physically by their side. How many of us have ever seen the movie, I think it's called The Sixth Man. I think it came out in, uh, maybe in the 90s. It's one of those corny, like, basketball movies. But for some reason, like, I liked the movie. Like, that was one of my favorite, like, movies growing up. So I, I guess... You know, I'm a, I'm a corny guy. That's cool. But um, if you haven't seen it, no, you, you should watch it, right? So in the movie, the two, like the two, the two main characters are Kadeem Harrison and Marlon Wayans, right? Both of them are brothers. They, um, they, played, they grew up playing basketball together. They both had dreams of making it to the NBA. So they played basketball together on the same team, all throughout childhood, all the way up until college. Now, Kadeem Harrison, he was the star. And in the movie, it was during, like, like during one of their basketball games, he like suddenly collapsed and, and he died. And this left the younger brother, played by Marlon Wayans, this left him, you know, feeling sad. You know, he, he was confused because he was used to always having his older brother there to take the weight, right, to, to be the star. And so this, this made Marlon have to fill those shoes. He had to, you know, he had to be the leader of the team, right? He had to be the star. So when, when he died, the team, they, they struggled. They started losing games. And as the movie goes on, the older brother, he comes back from the dead. And he's like this angel. And he's, he's kind of like working from having, he's working through uh, his brother. He's working through the team. And he's kind of altering the game. So they start, you know, they, they begin to start winning basketball games. They ultimately end up winning the championship, right? I thought that was a good illustration to use in, in how Jesus, in a sense, the work that he does, right, through the Holy Spirit and him going back to heaven and, and sending uh, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper 
to be with you forever. Some Bible translations use the word comforter or advocate instead of helper. The Greek word that is translated as helper or comforter is parakletos, which literally means standing alongside another. R.C. Sproul, he says this about the term parakletos. He says, technically, the parakletos was the family attorney who was on a permanent retainer. Anytime a problem arose in the family, the parakletos was on call, and he would come immediately to assist in the struggle. All right, I feel like the Holy Spirit is probably the most misunderstood or often the forgotten person of the Godhead, right? We know that God, like I said, is, is, is a trinity, is a triune God, right? God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. Now, this Holy Spirit that Jesus promised proceeds from the Father and the Son. He's the third person of the Trinity. Although the disciples would no longer have the physical presence of Jesus, they would be given the Holy Spirit who is of the same essence as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is also referred to in this passage as the Spirit of Truth. And he's referred to the Spirit of Truth, as John MacArthur says, because he is the source of truth and communicates the truth to his own. Look, family, apart from the Holy Spirit coming, we will be left darkened in our understanding about who God is. None of us right now would be Christians. We wouldn't be saved. Right? If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I mean chapter 2, Verse 12, it says this. It says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Brothers and sisters, have you ever stopped to think about what we as Christians believe? We believe that the God of this earth, the creator of all that we see, actually took on human flesh, right, was born of a virgin, took on human flesh, grew up, died on the cross, was raised three days later. Do you know how foolish that sounds? You know, to those who don't know Christ, to the world, they, they look at Christians as, as being fools, as being irrational people. So how come we are sitting here today and we believe these things, but they don't? Well, it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Without it, we would not be able to understand these spiritual truths that we find in the scriptures. Praise God for sending the Holy Spirit. Jesus, he didn't leave his disciples to be on mission and live the Christian life without him. If you are a Christian, that means that right now you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you at this moment. Think about that. Look at the end of verse 17. In John chapter 14, the end of verse 17, Jesus says, You know him, 
for he dwells with you and will be in you. Right, Paul, he says the same thing when addressing the church at Corinth. Right? He reminded them that their bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 25 and 26 of our passage. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You know, without the work of the Spirit, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a Bible, right? The, the Holy Spirit used men to write the words of Scripture, right? Working through these men to write the words of Scripture. How do you think the disciples were able to remember all that Jesus taught them? It's because the Holy Spirit brought into their remembrance all of Jesus' teachings. That's why we have a Bible. The Holy Spirit will bring into remembrance all that Jesus had taught them. And the disciples, they would need to remember what Jesus taught them if they were going to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples of the nations. Right, the Holy Spirit given to us by Christ, it guides us into all truth. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27 states, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, it's no lie just as it taught you abide in him. Not only does this, the Holy Spirit teach us, but it strengthens us and it empowers us to overcome the world. First John chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's no way that we could ever overcome the world. It's no way we could overcome the sin in our life brothers and sisters, without the Spirit being at work within us. So you see, the work of the Spirit, it supplements the work of Christ. Jesus came while we were without strength, and his sacrificial death on the cross, it, re it released us from the bondage of sin. Now, the Holy Spirit, which we receive by faith, now empowers us to live the life that Christ has called us to live, and that is a life of holiness. As I close, I want us to look at verse 17 again. And Jesus, he mentions something very significant about the Holy Spirit in this verse. He says, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. This helper that Jesus promised to give us, he did not give it to the world. Which brings us to this final point. Jesus comforts those who love him. Jesus comforts those who love him. If I say I love my wife, naturally it should show, right, that I love my wife. I should respect her. I should care for her. I should provide for her. I should spend time with her. I should remain faithful to her. If I fail to do these things consistently, then she has every right to question my love for her. You have every right to question my love for her. 
Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. These two verses are connected. We can't get to verse 16. We can't receive the help and the comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit without verse 15. Right now, Jesus is not, he's not preaching a works-based salvation. He's not doing that. Remember, this conversation that he was having, he was having it with who? His disciples, meaning they were already followers of Jesus Christ. Right? They already had come to faith in Christ. He was simply reminding them of their duty. And what is that duty? Look at verse 21 and 23. He says it again. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Commentator Matthew Henry, he helps us to understand the point of these verses when he states, listen to this, he says, Christ will not be an advocate for any but those that will be ruled and advised by him as their counsel. Follow the conduct of the Spirit, and you shall have the comfort of the Spirit. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, chapter 9, he says, You are, however, not of the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Those of us who belong to Christ can be sure that we belong to him because of the spirit that he has made to take residence in us. And not just the spirit, but according to verse 23, the entire Godhead, the Trinity. This recalls the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Remember, God's presence dwelt among his people when they gathered to worship in, in the temple, in, the, in the, uh, the tabernacle. But what does the New Testament teach us? teaches us that today our bodies are now the temple that is indwelt by God. So how do we know we love Christ? We know we love Christ by our obedience to his commandments. That's the test. So I ask you, do you love Christ this morning? Simply grieving for someone is no proof that you love that individual. Like Jesus knew that. He was very clear. He made that clear to the disciples. You know, and I'm just paraphrasing his words. Basically, he told them, you know, it's, it's fine and dandy that, you know, you'll miss me, and that you're feeling sad when I'm gone, but if you really love me, you will keep my commandments. Remember, Christ knew what lay ahead for the disciples when he was leaving. He knew the persecution that was going to come their way. But yet, in all of that, he, re he comforted them by reminding them of their duty to obey his commandments. Love when life is easy and circumstances are favorable proves very little. We must love Jesus during the most difficult times and circumstances. We must obey all of Christ's commandments, not just the easy ones. We cannot neglect this great duty. Christ knew what lay ahead for his disciples. But yet, 
He told them to obey him. When we obey Christ, we can be sure we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We can be sure that Christ is working in us. So as I bring this to a close, question one, remember, of the the Heidelberg Catechism, it asks this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not the hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of the eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. If you are a Christian this morning, remember the comfort that you have. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I'm so happy that you are here. But just notice this comfort that we've been talking about, you don't have that comfort. You do not have the comfort of Christ. But check this out. The call, the invitation is for you to come to him today to receive this comfort, to receive the Holy Spirit that comes by faith, that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. Again, if you are a Christian, I pray that you will find comfort in Christ this morning, no matter what you're going through this morning. Jesus Christ provides comfort to his people. Look to him. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We know that your word is able to comfort us. Lord, only you provide true comfort. I pray that everyone in this room would take you at your word, that they will look to you for comfort, no matter what their circumstances might be. I pray that they would trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.